a sense that if you're here this morning, you're here because you need to hear a word from the Lord. And so I want to pray now that, um, that God would speak to you the truths and the, and the words that he knows you need to hear this morning. Will you bow your heads with me now? Gracious God, we pray. God, we come before you because we come to church to worship you, to give all that we have to you. But God, there's a little bit of selfishness in all of us when we gather here on Sabbath because we also need a word from you. And so, Lord, we know that you are gracious and that you are faithful. And so, Lord, now we pray that as we open up Holy Scripture that you would, you would speak into our lives the truth of who you are. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This morning, we, I'm asking the youth, two of, the, our, of our Lovely youth to hand out some study guides for you. This morning, it's going to require that we pay a little extra close attention because we don't have a PowerPoint slide this morning. But this morning, we are continuing our series, God is Nowhere. It is an Advent series for this year. And as we remember, the idea of Advent is that Christ came once and Jesus is coming again to renew all things. So I want to begin with this question. How many of you have ever had one of those days when you wake up, you look around, and you think to yourself, how did things ever get this way? How many of you have ever woken up and thought to yourself, or even in the middle of the day, you look around and you think to yourself, this isn't how I thought things would be? Maybe you've had the thought, I thought things would be a whole lot better than this. Maybe another way of putting it is things didn't work out the way they were supposed to when you thought about how things were going to be when you were an adult. This is a biblical narrative. This is the same story of the Israelites in Egypt. When the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, I have a sense that maybe they woke up sometimes and thought to themselves, this wasn't the way things were supposed to be. We weren't created to be slaves to Pharaoh. Our purpose does not consist in simply working and making bricks to build up someone else's wealth. For the Israelites, they may have thought this wasn't the way things were supposed to be. And in the beginning of the book of Exodus, what we find is that God responds to the cries of the Israelites. So, if you have your Bibles, I I would invite you to open to Exodus chapter 3. And yes, this is a Christmas sermon. Exodus chapter 3. By the way, and as you're getting to Exodus chapter 3, you might want to highlight this in your Bible if you highlight your Bible. As I was preparing um, for this week's sermon, um, I I came home Saturday after a long day here at church, and I was still... Kind of the adrenaline was still flowing from an awesome Sabbath of not only worship, um, but also of of the young adults. We had a a social here, and it was highly competitive games, so it was really fun. So I came home, and I was still really, really adrenaline rushing still, so I started working on this week's message. And 
I just wrote a bunch of notes as I was reading until, you know, until late on Saturday night. And the whole week, I've just been kind of ruminating over these words and looking at the passages. And so this morning, um, if, with your question or not, I'm going to go ahead and preach this entire sermon um, because I have to hit all of the points for you to really understand where we're going and what God has to say for us. So um, yeah, I'm going to ask you to keep it, you know, pay full attention because we're going to fly through this. Um, but this sermon is almost two sermons in one, not in length, but in content. So I need you to to really, to really focus. So Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. The Israelites are in Egypt. They are brick-making animals, literally building up another man's kingdom and wealth. And this is what God says to Moses. I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians to bring them up out of that land to a land that is good, a broad land, a land that is flowing with milk and honey. What does the Bible say? That, the God, that God heard the cry of the Israelites because they were being oppressed. In the midst of the Israelites' feeling of things weren't supposed to be this way, God hears their cry. And then if you just drop down to verse 9, God again says, The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. How many of you have ever felt like whatever obstacle is in front of you is insurmountable, too difficult, and you would rather just give up? I'm sure we've all felt that way in some form or another. And the truth is, is that's the story we find in the book of Exodus. The Israelites had just given up, but God hears their cry, and God chooses to do something about it. During Advent, if you have your study guide, this will be number one, but during Advent, we are a people in exile. I want to follow this image for the rest of the next couple of weeks, but as as Adventists, as Christians in the world today, we know that this, as good as it may be sometimes, and as bad as it is sometimes, this isn't the way God intended things to be. The world around us isn't the way God dreamed the world would be when God created the world. And so we find ourselves living in a time where it isn't really how it will be when God returns to make all things new. So we are a people in exile. And during this time of the year, the Christmas season, and what we at this church have said is the Advent season, what we do is we sing songs of Advent. The reason we're singing songs more than usual is because there is a message and a meaning in the songs. The songs of Advent aren't just songs about about Christmas and presents and and all that fun stuff. But Advent songs, if you look at their lyrics, are about people wanting the coming of Christ to be now. The song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, it is a prayer. It is a beg of desperation to God that he come now. Advent is the culmination of our faith saying, God, we long for your presence now. But in the meantime, we are a people that wait. We are, in essence, a people who are in exile. And so I want to read two passages from the book of Matthew now. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Matthew. It's the first book in the New Testament. So the second part of the Bible is the first book, Matthew. And we're going to look at chapter 24. Again, this is a Christmas sermon. Um, 
Matthew 24, usually 24 and 25, are images of the end of time. And so we want to look at this because it speaks deep truth and essential truth to us today. So remember, we're people in exile. The world that we live in isn't the way God intended it to be. Even at its very best, God dreamed of an even better world and a better reality. And God will come to restore and renew this earth. So whatever situation you find yourself in, understand God doesn't want it to be that way. God hears your cry. God is coming because he already came once. So let's look at Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 36. And this is what it says. I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. This is what it says. Jesus says, But about the day and hour no one knows neither the angels of heaven nor the Son. So Jesus is saying, when I'm coming, nobody knows, not the angels, not you, not your preachers, not your prophets, not even I know. He says, but only the Father. For as the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away. So too, this will be the coming of the Son of Man. I don't want us to read too much into that because all we know is people were living life. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, giving into marriage. What the Bible, what Jesus is saying is they were just living life, ordinary life. They didn't know something was coming. We don't want to read too much into this because we would, be, we would not be fair to the text and what Jesus was saying. All Jesus is saying is life was going on as usual. People were getting up and going to work. People were eating. People were drinking. People were having fun. People were just living their life. And he says, but just as it was in the time of Noah, so it will be when I come again. Verse 40. Then two will be in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. The two women will be grinding meal together. One will be taken. One will be left. This is where we get some of the theology of the rapture. All this, all Jesus is really saying is some people go, some people won't. Some people will have accepted the truth of Christ, others will not. All this is really saying is that when Jesus comes, when God comes to renew all things, there will be some people who have chosen to believe and accept that Jesus is the one he says, and there will be others who don't. We cannot build an entire theology over two verses, okay? So we don't believe in the rapture and as Adventists, okay? So it goes on. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known... In what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. It's kind of funny if we think about it. Jesus was just being political. He's like, I don't even know when I'm coming. So what do politicians do? They say all kinds of words and work around it. And Jesus was just like, I don't even know when I'm coming back. Just be ready. I'm obviously, that's joking, of course, guys. I'm not saying Jesus was a politician. But the idea behind it is that Jesus doesn't even know. And so Jesus says, be ready. Be ready. Growing up as a Seventh-day Adventist, I heard this, this passage used more than 100 times, I'm sure. It was probably referenced at a certain time in my life, probably every single Sabbath that we came to church. And the only thing that it did in me, and it might have done to you, is it instilled a tremendous amount of fear in my life. I was a kid, and all I ever heard the preacher say was, you better be ready. So I've spent my entire life trying to be ready. The problem is, can we really give an answer to what it means to be ready? 
the imagery that Jesus uses of a thief coming in the night is actually kind of scary, isn't it? Yeah. But what he's really just trying to say is you don't know when it's coming. It's coming at an unexpected time and an unexpected hour. You will be living your life as normally as you would any other day, but the day that Jesus comes to renew and restore all things, you won't be expecting it. And it'll happen. And so Jesus' command, Jesus' call to us is you must be ready. So think that. Let's move on to the next story, the very next chapter, Matthew 25. These are both stories of people who are waiting. Uh, Matthew 25, I'm going to read through this. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like this. This is actually talking about a future kingdom. Ten bridesmaids took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps, so they took extra oil. As the bridegroom was delayed, all of them became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a shout, Look, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those bridesmaids got up, trimmed their lamps, Now the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise replied, no, there will not be enough for you and for us. You had better go to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they went to buy it, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him into the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the other bridesmaids came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. Remember the imagery of Noah, okay? Lord, Lord, open to us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I do not know you. And so then Jesus says, keep awake, therefore, for you you know neither the day nor the hour. Some of you are like, man, we came to hear a, a sermon about love, not about the end. But the truth is that this is a sermon about love. In Jesus, coming to this earth once, God is extending his hand of love to us. He is reaching out to you, and he is saying, I have now provided for you the doorway to enter into eternal life, not at some future time, but to begin to experience the fullness and the reality of God's kingdom today. Now, these are both stories about being ready. The question is, if I ask, if I ask five of you, What does it mean to be ready? We might all have different answers. And so this morning during our Advent series, I want to answer some of those questions of what does the Bible mean when Jesus says that you must be ready? So number two, really quickly. Number two says, some, this is referring to the last story, some are ready, some are not we're talking about the, brides, the bridesmaids, or some of your Bible translations say the virgins. Some are ready and some are not. So when Jesus comes, this is a story, this is a metaphor of all of us. Should Jesus come while we are alive, some of you will be ready, some of you will not. Number three, no one can have faith for you. No one can have faith for you. In other words... Only you can develop your own faith in Christ. Your mom can't do it for you. Your dad can't do it for you. The preacher can't do it for you. The elders can't do it for you. Only you can develop a relationship with Christ. And number four, 
Oh, and, that, and that's number four. Only you can develop your faith. The story of the bridegrooms, or the bridesmaids rather, is that only you can determine if you are going to be ready for the day that Jesus comes. So I would say this. Here's what it being ready It doesn't mean that you are sinless and that you have gotten rid of all the sin in your life because that's impossible. If you could get rid of sin in your life, Jesus doesn't have to come because you can do it on your own. So being ready doesn't mean you are without sin. Another thing that being ready doesn't mean is it can't mean that you reach a level of goodness, like you, like you reach a threshold of goodness. Like when you're taking a math exam, if you get a 90%, what is that, an A minus or so? If you get anywhere in the 80s, it's a B. If you get a C, uh, 70s, it's a C. But anything below a C, it's, you kind of failed. You probably should take the class over. God doesn't grade us on that kind of a scale. You can't reach a certain level of goodness and then you're saved because it goes back to doing it yourself. You can't do it. It also doesn't mean that you know more than other Christians. So being ready for Jesus' return doesn't mean that you know more than other Christian groups. It just doesn't. The Bible makes no reference to that. We might, but the Bible doesn't. So these are all things that it doesn't mean to be ready. So are you ready to know what it means to be ready? Can we say amen? <laughs> Do you think it's going to be hard? Do you guys think it's hard to be ready for when Jesus returns? I hope the answer is no. <laughs> but it does take work. And here's, here's where we start. So I would argue this, that three kind of four things that the Bible says of what it means to be ready. So here's number one. Number one is actually five on your little sheet here. And it says this. You have washed your robes in the blood of Christ. You have washed your robe in the blood of Christ. Now, if you're visiting for us or if this coming to church is a newer thing for you, this doesn't make sense to us either. Because if you wash any robe in blood, there is no kind of blood that is going to turn an actual robe red. As a matter of fact, this week, um, my, my nine-year-old, he, for whatever reason, I don't know where he got these, but he got pomegranates, right? And so I go and take my first son to one school. I come back to pick up the nine-year-old, and I come into the house to say, let's go, and I see red all over his white shirt. I'm like, what did you, what did you kill? Like, what's happening? And he was like, it was the pomegranates. I cut it. I'm like, you couldn't have put it further away or in the sink? So what do I do? Okay, so we go and we get another shirt. And as he's putting the pomegranates in a Ziploc bag, what happens? Another white shirt gets killed. Yeah. I'm like, you're going to have to go to school like that because so, he will only wear white shirts to school. Weird. I don't know why, but he will only wear white polo shirts to school. He wouldn't wear a blue one or a gray one, just a white one. But it's funny because this is a text I was wrestling with all week. And yet what I find is that blood doesn't make things white. Right? Right? Amen? So when we come to the book of Revelation and we see this passage, it's not talking about something that is literal. Jesus is not telling you to take clothes or a robe because we don't have robes anymore. He's not telling you to take your nicest clothes and dip it into blood. In essence, what Jesus is saying is that this is a metaphor. This is imagery that they would have understood. In essence, what Jesus is doing here is the very impossible 
I can make that happen. So a modern day illustration for us would be, and I don't want you to raise your hands, but I will for all, most of us. How many of us have ever had a credit card? How many of us in our younger days, I'm not saying it happened to me, I have a friend who had some credit cards that he got outside of the school bookstore in college. Makes sense, right? Books are expensive. Let me get a credit card. How many of us have ever run our credit cards up to such a... To, I don't have credit cards now, by the way, just so you know. I, I learned my lesson young. But how many of us have ever had a credit card and we have just maxed it out? And we make the minimum payments because that's, all, that's why we use the credit card because we don't have the money to pay for our books or whatever else we pay for. How many of us have ever had a credit card and it has been maxed out? To, if Jesus were alive today, he might say, it's when you open up your credit card statement and you know it's maxed out but the balance is zero. Someone else has paid your bill. In essence, Jesus was saying, I will take all of the dirtiness and the grime and the sins and all of the horrible things you've ever said or done to anybody. I will take all of the, all of the stuff that brings you shame and that you hide from the world. I will take all of that and I will cleanse it and I will make you pure. To be ready in essence, is that you have washed your robes in the blood of Christ. In essence, is that you accepted the sacrifice of Christ. Now, I can go into a whole sermon about this to talk about the Old Testament and the structure of the, of the blood offerings that they would bring animals to be sacrificed. This all has to do with that. I can't go into that today. But just trust that what I'm saying is true. That what Jesus is saying is that the impossible I can have done it. So number one, to be ready, you have washed your robes in the blood of Christ, that you have indeed accepted the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, and that you know that it counts even for the worst of your sins. Two things that it means to be ready, and it's number six on your, on your handout, is that you understand and accept the free gift of God's grace daily. So the number two thing that it means to be ready is you understand and accept the free gift of God's grace daily. So I want to give you a passage. It's right there, so you don't have to turn to it right away. But I'll read it for you. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. And remember I said last week that this series is a deeply theological series? It's because we're talking about what it means to be saved. We're talking about the reason we gather here. This series is that Jesus is coming, and we can believe it to be true because it's come already. So, number two thing, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. It says, For by grace you have been saved, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. I'm going to pause there for a second. You are saved by grace through faith this is not your own doing what did i say earlier that you cannot do anything to save yourself or become sinless the only way you become sinless is because jesus dies at the cross and when god sees you, all god sees is the image of christ in you your sinlessness isn't really that you stop sinning it's that all god sees is that jesus has paid the price for you that's the gospel we can get an amen in here if you like. This actually has a lot to do with you. <laughs> you don't have to pay your credit card bill. In the scheme of things, but you do have to pay your credit card bill. 
your regular one, not the one Jesus covers for you. But it is by grace that Jesus has saved you. And the Bible says that it is nothing that you have done, nothing you have done. The Bible, God's word said, it is a gift of who? Of God. A gift is given freely. God gives it to everybody. It's up to you whether you understand that Jesus has done this and whether you accept it. So the number two thing to understand the gift of God and that you accept the gift of God and that you remember it daily. It's not just, okay, good, I'm done. God has saved me and I'm going to go live my life however I want to. It's not even about that. It's to fully understand that God has forgiven you as it compels us to live in a way that gives honor and glory. Number three, number three per, the number three way you know that you are ready is number seven on your list is that you accept and live into the purpose that God intends for you, or rather that God has created for you, that you accept and live into the purpose that God has created for you. And just so you know that I'm not making all this stuff up, right? I'm going to just ask you to go one verse down, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, and this is what the Bible says. For we are what he, God, has made us, created in Christ for, what, is it, what does it say here? For good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. So the number three thing is accept and live into the purpose God has created you for. God created you to do good works. Don't pat yourself on the back for doing good works. That was your purpose. And the Bible says, and the Bible says that it is, a, it is what God prepared beforehand to be your way of life. You know you are ready for Christ's return if you are living into the purpose God has created for you, which is to do good with your family, with your boyfriend, with your girlfriend, with your children, with your church members, with your co-workers. To do good means that you understand that Jesus has saved you. He has given it as a free gift, and now God says, just live into the purpose you created. I created you to be. I was having a conversation a few weeks ago, um, and I think Vicky, one of our church members, was telling us that within a one or two mile radius of the orange circle or the plaza, there are, was it 46 churches, Kurt? Was it something like that? A number that didn't make sense at all, but, you know, she's married to the former mayor and current councilman, so I got to believe her. And um, 40, some 46 churches, and I thought to myself, hmm, it's not cl- counting ours, by the way. We're too, I mean, we're too far, the, the, the measuring spe- the, uh, radius. With that many Christians in a small town, what if we all did what God called us to do? Wouldn't it change the world? You know, sometimes we, 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 we talk about how we're waiting for Jesus to return, and Jesus is like, but you are my body now. You are my hands and my feet in the world now. And if you're not doing something to show others that I am a God of love, of forgiveness, of redemption... Why do you need me to come? You haven't understood the message of the gospel of grace. So that's number three. Number four, which is number eight in yours, is this. Live in the Spirit. If you are living in the Spirit, then you are ready for Christ to come. Now to live in the Spirit, now Galatians chapter 5 Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 says this, Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, when Paul is writing this, and this is his worldview, 
To live by the Spirit is to do all that you can to honor and give glory to God and to serve others. To live by the flesh is just to gratify your own desires and to live for yourself and say, forget everybody else. Forget everybody else. It's not, it's not, I don't care what they do. I don't care what they say. I don't care what they need. Make, make them go get a job. I'm not going to help them out. I work hard for my money. Why am I going to help that guy who's standing there? Well, we don't know their life. We don't know why they've turned to what they've turned to. And ultimately, the question is, what would Jesus do for somebody like that? Are we living the way Jesus is asking us to live? We live in the Spirit when we fully understand that we are actually today at 1211 at the Orange Seventh-day Adventist Church in the city of Orange, the world around us, the kingdom of God is present. The kingdom of God is present anytime and anywhere each one of you allows God to be Lord of your life. Whenever you filter and channel the love of Christ to others, the kingdom of God is present. You see, these stories that make us afraid that Jesus is coming and you don't know and you better be ready shouldn't be scary at all. Instead, Jesus is saying, you think, this is, I could just see Jesus like where Jesus is because I don't really buy that Jesus is in heaven somewhere billions of miles away. I don't buy that. God, Jesus, God, God is present in his world. Okay. I don't know how God chooses to do that. I just know that he does. But I can just see Jesus kind of shaking his head like, you, you really think you can do something to be ready for when I come back? See, because when, when we plan for a disaster, what do we do? We get water and all sorts of rations and all sorts of stuff when we get ready. When we're planning a vacation, we plan itinerary. Well, I plan itineraries, right, that everybody hates, so we don't never do it. But, and then we get our suitcases and extra socks in case we walk through a river or whatever, right? We plan and we do things. So when it comes to Jesus, we think like, well, we need to get ready. I need to get rid of this sin and this sin and this sin in my life. And if I have this sin, then I'm definitely not going. And then people, preachers, will get up here and say, if Jesus came today, would you be saved? And then we're always like, well, I don't know, because we begin to think about all the dirtiness inside of us. We begin to think of all of our sins, and Jesus was just like, see, you missed the point. Maybe I have to wait a little bit longer because I want all of you to come. So until you understand what it means that I have forgiven you and saved you, I'm not coming because I don't want to be without you. Have you ever heard it that way? Perhaps the reason that Jesus isn't coming is because we keep trying to earn our own salvation. And Jesus doesn't want to lose any one of you. I live by faith that what Jesus says is true. If I wrote a list of all the sins in my life, and Jesus used that as a list of whether I'm naughty or nice, (laughs) of whether I go to heaven or not, I would be out. But yet what the Bible tells us, and this is why we gather here, is that Jesus has already forgiven all of those sins. And the thing that I'm going to do tomorrow, Jesus has forgiven. And the thing that I do the day after that, Jesus will forgive me. The problem is, is that we don't do well with that kind of freedom. And so we resort to lists and trying to earn salvation. And Jesus was just like, okay, okay, you're just making me wait longer. Fine, if you want to wait, you're just making me wait longer. To be ready during this time of Advent is number nine, Advent is about learning to live appropriately between the two comings of Christ. Jesus has taken care of the sin problem. Amen? Jesus has taken care of the sin problem. Amen? 
You can't. You could try, but you would fail miserably every time. So during this time of Advent, as we read last year, the last week rather, the story, the story of Ellen White being given a green cord in a dream. And dreams can be very real, amen? I had a very real dream last night that's still bothering me today, and it was just a dream. So Ellen White has a dream, and in it, an angel gives her a green cord, a coil, and, it's, and, and the angel says, any time that you feel alone or sad because you want to see Jesus, take that green cord and stretch it out, and you will be reminded that Jesus is present. And last week I said that every time during Christmas when we all gather around our Christmas trees and we hang the ornaments, that that is God's gift of saying, I came once, go ahead, have the tree. God's like, have the tree. They're all mine anyway, right? I created every tree. So go ahead, have a bit of my nature in your house. But every time we decorate the tree, it's a, it's a little bit of a green cord that God gives us as a reminder that Christ is present. And so another green cord that God gives us during this time of Advent is not necessarily Starbucks, although we love it, some of us. Amen. I get an amen for that, right? <laughs> Jesus saves you. Amen. Starbucks. Amen. But any time we sip on eggnog or on hot chocolate, or what Mexicans call champurado, which we drink all year long, but especially during Christmas. And any time you have the gingerbread cookie, the gingerbread houses, tamales, pozole, what do, what do, what do non-Hispanics have for, for Christmas? Turkey? I don't know. Whatever, whatever you non-Hispanics have for Christmas meals. <laughs> Enchiladas. <laughs> Yeah, put, what, yeah, whatever your tradition, <laughs> when you're sitting around the table or snacking in the kitchen, just as, it's a reminder that the drinks and the food that we eat during Christmas is another one of God's gifts that he says, remember, when you have all these things, it points to the birth of Christ, and it points to the fact that I am coming again and I am coming soon. And so we can, we can hate all of this, and say, that's not what the reason, the season, what is the reason for the season? Or we can just say, yeah, Christ is born, and Christ is risen, and I'm going to enjoy my vanilla latte while I think about that. <laughs> because in the end, our faith happens in the context of everyday life. And during the time of Advent, God says, enjoy it, enjoy it all, because it's just a reminder that I am coming soon, so be ready this moment, I want to pray, pray for us as we continue to wrestle with some of this teaching um, because I know it's not necessarily an easy teaching for many of us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we now come before you. It's past 12, Lord, and we're still here, so you know we're, we're serious. But the truth is, God, is that we are just in awe of being in your presence, and we come to the scriptures because in it we know that there is life. And so, God, now we pray. That as we look towards these symbols that you have allowed us to have during the Christmas time, that the next time each one of us reaches to have a warm drink or a sweet cookie or whatever we eat, that we would be reminded that you are indeed coming. And these are just small samples of your goodness. And in this time of Advent, Lord, in just a few moments as we pick up or as we give you the offering, as we give back our tithe, as we give back gifts that you have given us, I pray that you would help us to do so joyfully. 
and that we would be reminded that during this Christmas time, we shouldn't just be looking for the gifts that you give us, but that we would also give in return to you and to your children. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.